This is Writers on a New England Stage, a partnership between NHPR and the Music Hall in Portsmouth. Writers on a New England Stage brings acclaimed authors to the Granite State to discuss their lives and recent works. And earlier this year, former NHPR host Peter Biello spoke at length with best-selling author Eric Larson about his latest work, Splendid and the Vile, a saga of Winston Churchill, family, and defiance during the London Blitz. Eric Larson, thank you so much for joining us. For oh, it's great to be here. Stage. Let me tell you, it's the only the second live thing I've done in two years. The other one was yesterday. So. Wow. <laughs> well, well tell, tell us, how's it been for you these past two years? Well, first of all, it hasn't felt like two years, has it? Right? It feels like every, every time I want to say last year, I have to correct myself and say, well, actually, two years ago, you know? Hmm. You know, we did actually okay. We did okay. You know, yeah. I'm a writer. Lock, lockdown is what I do, you know, um, and my wife likewise. So, yeah, and thankfully our kids fared pretty well. So, yeah. Well, that's good to yeah. hear. Glad everybody seems to have done pretty well. Yeah. That's yeah. great. So, surviving. Yeah. So, The Splendid and the Vile. Yes. Tell us a little bit about why you chose to write about this period uh, of World War II in, in this particular way with, with uh, Churchill and his family. Uh, in, in sharp focus? Well, first of all, may I say that um, in, <laughs> in choosing to write about Churchill, I, I, I think I briefly lost my mind because, you know, I mean, Churchill has been written about by so many people so often. And it probably was not a day that went by in the course of working on this book when I didn't ask myself, what are you doing, you know? But the reason I got into it, um, uh, we were living in... My wife and I and our three daughters were living in Seattle when 9-11 occurred. We watched a, that horrific event unfold in real time on, on CNN, and it was, you know, we were absolutely shocked, like, like so, many, so many people. But then, um, after the kids flew the coop and we moved to Manhattan, I suddenly had this epiphany about what 9-11 was really like for people in New York. You know, their home city was attacked. And I started thinking almost immediately about the London, what we call, what we know as the, know of as the London Blitz, uh, and you know, thinking about that at, at its peak, that were 57 consecutive nights of bombing, 57 consecutive nights of bombing, 57 consecutive 9/11s, and I started thinking, well, how on earth does somebody survive? How do you endure that kind of an assault? And I thought about doing the typical London family. I started you know, doing some, some you know, minor research into what might be a typical family. And then I thought, wait a minute, why not do the quintessential London family, Winston Churchill and his family and his close advisors who were like family. And so that's how, that's how I got into the story. And my particular window, though, was that I wanted to know in detail exactly how they did get through it, how they, how they went about enduring it, what they had for dinner, what they did for weekends and all that kind of thing. And so that became the thing that sustained me because it turned out that nobody had actually done that before. So that's how it all came about. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's interesting that you describe them as, as quintessential because it seems like um, 
they were, when they wanted to, able to escape what was happening to London, right? Yes. Which may have not been the case for, for a lot of people living in London. They were able to escape to, to Chequers. But that was, right. of course, one of the, the many wonderful settings here because that was where so much right. uh, planning for the war effort took place. Um, I'm sure yeah. we'll get to that. Uh, yeah, well, one point sure. about that is that, it, it, um, yeah, I mean, uh, British culture was, was completely bifurcated. You know, there were the, the, the poor and working class, and then there were the very well-off. And among the very well-off, of which Churchill, of course, was, going out for, to, to the country home on the weekend was the thing. You, everybody did that, and every, every country home had a name. You know, and this one happened to be Checkers, and it was the, the prime ministerial country estate. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I, I was curious in general about... Um, Churchill in this moment. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about Churchill. There's so much to say about him, but we'll definitely talk about the other uh, people in this book as well. They're yeah. so interesting. Uh, but Churchill in particular, in this, in this moment, um, I mean, he knows history. He's been a part of the, the British military. Um, it, was this moment uh, sort of the culmination of a large, uh, uh, just a momentous career, or do you think he was kind of in the right place in the right time when, when his predecessor fell out of favor? Well, I think it was, it's probably, probably actually, actually both. I mean, he was in the right place at the right time. Most of us, you know, in that situation would, would have assumed that we were in the absolutely wrong place at, at the right time. I mean, it was the case that literally the day that Churchill was made prime minister, May 10, 1940, was the day that that Hitler, uh, Hitler invaded the Low Countries when, when the so-called phony war, the sort of quiet war, became the hot war that we know as World War II. But for Churchill, he was thrilled. He was thrilled. This was like, this was like the thing he was working toward his whole life. So it's, it is sort of the culmination, at least in his mind, this is what he most wanted to be. And, and fate or, or whatever delivered it on that particular day. Mm -hmm. So in addition to uh, Churchill's family's accounts, uh, one of the things that you relied on was the diaries of people who lived through those many days of bombing. Uh, I, I imagine you read many more of these than you included in the book, so I'm curious about your, your impression of these diaries and what it was what it was like for those people to, right. to live under that constant threat. Yeah, yeah I, I couldn't have done this um, without, without the, the, the various diaries. Um, and, and you're quite right. I mean, I, I read an awful lot more diaries than, than, than are, are even cited in the, in the book. But, but one thing I want to I mention is, is that, that I didn't, I have the benefit of going into this book by not being a Churchill um, scholar. So I was able to, to come at it and everything that was interesting and new to me was, I figured would be new to my readers. And one thing that I came across, you know, other scholars of course have, have used, was this, this organization called Mass Observation. Mass observation. It was a social, social science research entity that was formed in Britain well before the war, with the idea of of having people, you know, scores of people keep diaries about just their ordinary, mundane details of life. Again, this is before the war. One test for diarists was was they were to describe what was on their mantelpieces. You know, this was a test to see if they could, I guess be boring enough to provide these diaries. So, so, so here they are, here are the scores of people providing diaries, and then the war comes along, and many of those diarists continued to keep their diaries. And this became, for me, an incredible source of, of detailed information about how, how ordinary people, how the real people of London fared during this, this horrendous period of the German air campaign. One character in particular, 
I, I use the term character, by the way. Um, they're nonfiction characters, but character is simply a, a, an easy way to, to talk about the people who populate my book. But one of these characters from Mass Observation I, I, I really loved, and she's, she's actually in the book, is a woman named Olivia Cockett. She was a young woman, um, uh, um, uh, worked for Scotland Yard as a clerk. What I also liked about her was that she was having an affair with a married man. I always like to have a little element of that in the book. And, and you know, she, she, her, her, her experience of the German air campaign really kind of tracked the experience of what, what made the British seem so resilient in the first place. On September 7, 1940 was the first time that the German Air Force actually deliberately bombed London. Previously, the, the air campaign had been directed at the RAF. September 7th, deliberately bombed London. Everybody was terrified. Olivia, my, my character from Mass Observation, was terrified as well. Just everybody was terrified. But then one day, you know, well into this, well into this blitz experience, an incendiary bomb lands outside the back door of her house in, in, in London. Incendiary bombs were what the Germans dropped to set fire to buildings that they'd already blown up so that they could have these tremendous fires that would then guide additional bombers to, to London. And so here was this incendiary bomb right outside the back, back door of her house, and she put it out. She puts this out, as people were instructed to do if they could. And it had a transformative effect on her. Suddenly, her fear, her fear literally went away. She, she became absolutely emboldened. Now, unfortunately, unfortunately, her lover, Bill, became more and more cowardly, and this was a source of some, some difficulty in their relationship. <laughs> at, one point, at one point, they're walking, they're walking during, a blit, during, a, 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 during an air raid at, you know, in the evening, as, as one does, I guess, and, and so they hear the telltale sound of, 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 a, of a triplet of, of, of bombs falling. And her, her boyfriend, uh, Bill, says, uh, says, get down, get down. And she goes, not in my new coat, I'm not. <laughs> Delightful details like that really make this book come alive. It's also worth noting that um, I hadn't really considered this, but the, the fact that your city is being bombed can really inspire romance. And oh, yeah. May <laughs> <laughs> Maybe should we leave it at that, or do you want to elaborate on that? <laughs> well, no, that, that was another thing. I, I actually, I, I, if I had my book here, I would, I would read that particular passage. But yeah, yeah, you know, it, 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 when, when your city is being bombed, you don't know if you're going to live or die. There was a, really a tendency to, to get out there and sleep with whomever, you know. Um, kind of makes, makes the air seem sort of appealing to me. But anyway, it was... It was <laughs> <laughs> well, that's um, certainly one way to survive a bombing. Yeah. Um, I, I imagine um, there were also people who were possibly in denial of, of the real threat that they lived in. I mean, imagine, that's the only way you could get through this. Like, oh, think of the odds. Is it going to be my house? Eh, I'm willing to take that risk. But the risk was still there. Yeah, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't use the term denial necessarily, but there was a point where people um, kind of came to an appreciation of the reality of the situation, which was that which says on, on any given night, you could not predict that a particular person would die. But on any given night, you could predict that somebody would die, a lot of somebodies. And it was, very, it was a very sort of, sort of capricious thing. Um, you know, uh, your house could survive, and the house next door could be completely demolished and everybody dead. So, so it was in, in that sort of an environment, how, how, how do you proceed other than to, you know, you either go screaming into, you know, the insane asylum known as Bedlam, or you try to cope. 
Mm -hmm. People had to make this scary calculation of, well, is it better to be in the house and have the house fall on top of me if there is a bomb, or yeah. should I be on the roof, and if the house collapsed, then I can fall on top of the rubble of that my house? That was literally the calculus that some people made, yes. Very do, do scary. I, do I, however, then, then there were many of them I was surprised to see, including Olivia Cockett, who just said, you know, I'm going to sleep in my own bed. You know, I'm going to sleep in my own bed, and whatever happens, happens. Um, of course, then there was also Mary Churchill, who, when a, when a bomber came, came over once, she puts her head under her pillow. <laughs> <laughs> Though, uh, I'm glad you mentioned Mary Churchill, because she in, in, really kind of lived fearlessly in, in some ways. And I wasn't sure what you made of that fear, because she was very young. Uh, and was it simply she had this sort of invincibility of youth, that things really hadn't happened to her that were so bad yet that she hadn't conceptualized it because she was going to parties and she was ha going on bike rides and having a grand old time yeah. and writing about all this in, your di in her diary that you recount here. Um, what do you think it was that, that put Mary Churchill in that mind frame? Well, she was 17 for one thing, you know, and, and feeling invulnerable. But also, also, let's remember that really for a good chunk of time, she was sequestered deliberately by her parents, Winston and Clementine, um, uh, in the country um, to keep her as, as, as safe as possible. And she did not want to be in the country. She wanted to be in the city in the absolutely worst way. She came in periodically for things. I mean, there, there's the, one, of my, one of the scenes that I, I find most, most compelling about this, this, this whole period was when um, she and her family went to Queen Charlotte's Ball, which was essentially the debutante ball for for that for that year, and it was in an underground um, ballroom in a, in, a, in a hotel. And while they were at this, well, well, first of all, I have to say that Mary in her diary makes a nice, really very <laughs> compelling remark about the debutantes. Mary had come out the year before, and here was this whole new crop of of, uh, of debutantes, and she writes in her diary that they were nothing to write home about. <laughs> you know. But anyway, so they're, they're, down, in this, they're down in the basement, as, and, and, and an air raid begins. And they can hear the thumping of the anti-aircraft guns, they can hear the heavy thudding of, of, of high explosives in, in, in the distance, but the party continued, the band continued playing, the whole thing came off as usual. Uh, they were set to go, though, afterwards to to uh, the, the Café de Paris and, and dance the night away. And, and while they were at this debutante ball, a, a, a bomb made a direct hit on the café and destroyed it, utterly destroyed it, and killed many people. And they showed up to, ready to dance and found the, the club that they were destined to be in, they had planned to be in, was absolutely gone. Um, what do they do? They go to the next club. You know, this is, this is what they did, because it was sort of honoring the dead. You, 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 you keep going, you go on. That, that was the sentiment, the yeah. honor, honoring the dead. Yeah. Maybe that's why I said the word denial, because I feel like, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm misjudging how I would react in a situation like that, but I feel like I'd be pretty shaken up by that and unable to have a good time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But maybe, but maybe after, like, you know, I, I don't know how many... How many weeks or months that was. that was. That was in, I think, March of 1941. So after that, I mean, it's, it's kind of a little like where we are with the pandemic. It's like, all right, let's just get on with it. You know, it's time. You're in the house for so long, then a trip to the dive bar down the corner feels like the best possible thing that you could do in this moment. <laughs> 
Which dive bar? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it would matter at that point. Did it matter as soon as I was vaccinated? I don't, I don't think yeah. so. <laughs> um, another source you drew on for this book was the, the, the diary of uh, John Jack Colville, who was, uh, the, was he the personal assistant of Churchill? Was Colville, yes, yeah. yeah. And, 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 I mean, to some extent, he shouldn't have been keeping that diary, right? Because it well, was a he, national security risk. He definitely but. should not have been keeping that diary. Very, very, very detailed account of all the goings-on um, at 10 Downing Street, all of Churchill's foibles, everything. And if the Nazis had got a hold of this thing, they would have, first, they would have laughed their asses off. Second, they, <laughs> second, they, they would have known what his whereabouts were at, at, at certain times. The thing about Colville, I'm, I'm glad you brought Colville up. John Colville was, uh, was one of a cadre of, of private secretaries that, that Churchill had. Each, each was on duty for, for a set period of time, then was replaced by the next guy, and so forth. But John Colville, um, because of this diary, which he published um, uh, as a book called The Fringes of Power, um, is, is easily the most famous of those, of those private secretaries. And he is quoted in probably every single biography written, uh, written about Churchill. But he's always quoted as like sort of a one-man Greek chorus. If you need a comment about Churchill to fill in a blank in your, in your text, you go to John Colville's diary. But I decided that, I, because I wanted to have flesh and blood characters moving, moving through the book, I decided that Colville deserved a chance now to come out of the shadows and be an actual character in the book. And so along those lines, I started thinking, well, okay, you know, you know I, in the introduction to his published diary, he says, everything's in here that was in my diary. I only cut out the trivialities. And to me, that's when all the alarm bells go off. I'm like, the trivialities? I think I'm going to try to find out what those were. So I went to the Churchill Archive Center in Cambridge, you know, equipped with the, 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 the printed copy of, of uh, the published copy of his, of his diary, The Fringes of Power. And then I was able to look at the original, um, you know, not, not the, the paper diary, but to, to look at um, a photographic facsimile of, of the actual diary. And so I was able to see um, readily which parts he had cut out because they were bracketed in light pencil, little light pencil brackets. And, and reading these things, I, I realized, you know I, you know, I remember when I was a young guy in my 20s, I mean, these were not trivialities. This guy was in love. This guy was in love, and it was unrequited love. She was not giving him the time of day, and, and it was just haunting him. So that, that's, my, that's my big contribution to uh, Churchill historiography, <laughs> is that Colville, Colville wasn't, nobody else had that. Nobody else bothered to look. So anyway. And, and the John Colville passages where he's pursuing this young woman uh, struck me as uh, the kind of cinematic balance it seemed like you were going for here in the sense that you've got some passages about, you know, how well the Royal Air Force is doing, right? And, and, and what Hitler's army is or, or Air Force is trying to do to counter that. And then there, there's a break in that kind of storytelling and you get deep into John Colville's heart. Um, and this happens with Mary Churchill. This happens to some extent with Pamela Churchill and Avril Harriman. Um, right. Is that kind of what you were going for? A way to sort of break up, I wouldn't want to call it the monotony because it wasn't monotonous, but it breaks the pace up a little bit and, and, and well, takes you into a human dimension. It's not so much that they were, that I introduced them in that way to, to, to break up the monotony. They are the story. That's, mm -hmm. that, was, that was the story I wanted to tell was what are these people doing? What, what on, the, on the daily basis, what are they feeling? How are they... How are they living their lives? And, 
And, but at the same time, you have to tell the broader story of the, 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 the big background things that were underway, you know, the, the threat of German invasion, the Hitler's plans for, for, for Russia and so forth. And, and I, I, even there, though, I tried, I tried to, you know, sometimes you can tell a lot of the dry stuff through uh, the eyes of a particular character, and it's not so dry. Like, I, I, I have a German fighter pilot, Adolf Galland, who, um, who um, flies throughout the book. Um, and and he, was, he, was like, he was sort of a godsend, because through him I'm able to talk about what the Luftwaffe is doing, but it's personalized. This guy was the most successful fighter ace in the Luftwaffe, uh, well, actually, he, he was eventually eclipsed by a couple of other flyers, but he did survive the war, incidentally. Um, so he was a terrific way to, to tell the, what might be the drier stuff. But the key thing was, I wanted to know about people like Mary. I wanted to know about Mary, you know, her references in her diary to snogging in the hayloft. You know, <laughs> this, is, this is gold, you know? And, she was, and she, she, she adored her father. Um, she, she could write really smartly and sensibly about political events and about the goings on at 10 Downing Street. But at the same time, as I said, she was a 17-year-old girl who really loved to have fun. And she had fun. One of my favorite little moments from the diary is when she's talking about swimming in a, in, in a, in a pond uh, on a summer day. She was, she was taking, uh, she and a friend were at this, uh, this estate for the, for the summer. And she talks, about, she talks about going swimming and throwing caution to the wind, meaning not wearing a bathing cap. <laughs> so. I want to talk about another person in this book, character in this yep. book, uh, such a huge personality, not Churchill, uh, Beaverbrook. This guy, close associate of Churchill, a thorn in everybody's side. Churchill puts him in, in charge of building up the Royal Air Force. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about both who he was and, and the state of the Royal Air Force when, when he took over? Yeah, so, so, so Lord Beaverbrook um, was a, he was a newspaper magnate, made, made, a, made a fortune. Um, everybody hated Lord Beaverbrook. Everybody in, in government in Whitehall really, really hated Lord Beaverbrook. Um, um, uh, he, but he was a friend of Winston Churchill's and Winston Churchill had he really had a, a, a good instinct, I feel, for picking advisors who would tell him the absolute truth. And Lord Beaverbrook was one of those guys. And, and Churchill had the good sense to, to make him head of a brand new ministry, the Ministry of Aircraft Production, um, because the RAF at that time was thought to be really lagging in aircraft production compared to the Luftwaffe. And, um, you know, Lord Beaverbrook, worked some magic there. I mean, you know, Churchill's instincts were correct. Now, Lord Beaverbrook was a difficult guy. Lord Beaverbrook was a difficult guy because, you know, to get attention, when he felt Churchill wasn't paying attention, when to get resources and so forth, he would resign. And, and, or try to resign. He would send the letter in. Well, he would, he would resign. He'd say, I, I, you're, you're going to be better off with that, but I resign. And he did, he did this 14 times. <laughs> 14 times in two years, you know, and, and, uh, but, but he, he kind of worked some magic, so that was good. It's hard to find it so funny because it was so frustrating for Churchill to hear another letter from Beaverbrook saying, I can't do this anymore, yeah, but, and like but, basically asking for praise, like praise me so I'll stay. But Churchill knew his man. He knew how to, to, to bring him back into the thing until it got too much, and then Churchill was essentially, okay, okay, fine, yeah, I'm done. 
you know, but by then the crisis was passed in terms of aircraft production. So, so he got the job done, but he, he ruffled some feathers, to put it mildly. Uh, and then there was also Professor Lindemann. Yes. Can you tell Frederick us a little Lindemann, about him? the prof. I love the prof. Um, he was this sort of tall, gray, um, laconic, um, thin-lipped, grudge-keeping, you name it. He was there, too. Nobody liked him. Except, nobody liked him except Clementine and Churchill's um, kids. They all liked him because he was, he was just, he always remembered their birthdays. He always, you know, whatever. But, but everybody else hated him because, because, first of all, Churchill gave him uh, this, this unlimited portfolio in his government. He made him his personal science advisor, which, um, uh, science and economics, um, which uh, essentially gave, gave um, the prof, Frederick Lindemann, um, uh, absolute license to go and, and stick his nose in any government entity, any project, anywhere, at any level um, in, in the British government at that time. And it really ticked people off. Um, and that's kind of what, what Churchill wanted, though. He wanted somebody who could, could, could leap in there and do all that stuff. Now, now the prof, the prof had some, some, some insecurities and some, some quirks. I mean, first of all, he was a vegetarian. Um, which at the time was was uh, was a little bit little bit suspect, I guess. But 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 he he just ate huge volumes of of, of mayonnaise, you know. So no wonder he was sort of a sallow complexion. But he was also very very sensitive about certain things. He wouldn't wear a wristwatch because he thought it was effeminate. Um, and also he he kept his 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 childhood nickname an absolute secret. And probably for good reason, because his childhood nickname was Peach. <laughs> I, did you ever read about these people and wonder if Churchill would have had an easier time if he picked people who were nicer or, or, or uh, more accommodating to their co-workers? Interesting thing to, to contemplate, but that's, that's like so speculative history. I know, I just, yeah. yeah. I just can't, I, I, I can't even go there. I think, that, I, I don't know. I think, I, think, I think Churchill benefited by having these guys who were there telling him, telling him the absolute truth, not, not polishing things to look better. I mean, you know, the, Hitler had the opposite problem. He had people who were trying to tell him all, all this good and happy news about bombings and the Luftwaffe and what the Luftwaffe could and couldn't do, when in fact the Luftwaffe could not do it. But, you know, uh, uh, Hermann Goering, the head of the Luftwaffe, kept telling Hitler all these glowing stories about his capabilities, which were just simply not true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the, the readings uh, you did for, for those, those men, those diaries. Yeah. Uh, what was it like diving deep into those minds? Well, yeah. Well, first of all, Hermann Goering is one of the all-time, I think, interesting, interesting um, evil characters of, of history. I mean, he was just this absolutely charismatic showman, you know, who, who would wear, you know, always concocting uniforms. And, and once he was, he, he would dress, he had dressed up in a, in a, a, a toga and had painted his nails red. Um, he was that kind of a flamboyant character. But probably, probably uh, the person I found most, um, I'm going to say compelling, I don't mean that in a positive way, was um, Josef uh, Goebbels, you know, the propaganda minister, minister, minister of popular culture and whatever. Um, but he kept a very detailed diary. Um, and it's so strange because here he was. He was, he was probably Hitler's number one anti-Semite. 
Um, and, and here he was in his diary, though, a very paternal, warm-seeming father. It was just this weird juxtaposition of the, this evil, evil character, who we know today to be this way, being this really warm-hearted father. It's just, you know, sort of weird. Yeah. Yeah, well, it was strange to see them yeah, become yeah. actual human beings. And but, and, and, you know, one might be inclined to say, well, look, this guy is, this guy is as rotten as they come. I'm not going to make him look good or anything. But, but to me, it's the nuances of people that are really compelling. We all know he's a monster, right? Um, but I don't know how many of us, I certainly didn't know that he had this, this, this warm, fatherly thing going on. And, and it, it just adds, I think, to the horror. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting to see, because you follow events so closely in this one-year period, how he would witness an event happen, maybe a, a, the Royal Air Force had some kind of success, and he would immediately be thinking about how to pitch this and spin this uh, to the German people. Uh, or, likewise, if, if they did something especially horrific right. to people in London, uh, he would kind of craft a message to make it seem like Londoners deserved it because they, if, if only they stopped resisting, we wouldn't have to bomb them so much. And it was just like, what are you thinking? Well, Goebbels, Goebbels was incredibly cunning. Um, and, and at what he did, at propaganda, he was, in fact, brilliant. And I, I, I doubt that he will ever be surpassed in that because he just had this malignant sense of how to manipulate the population. I mean, to the point where... To the point where he, 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 came, he came up with, he was instructing, there, 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 there was a series of memoranda from his, from his morning meetings with his, with his staff. And he came up with this instruction for, for, for his, his propagandists um, uh, that I, I find particularly diabolical. He, he, they had all these fake radio stations that would, that would broadcast into England and would seem to be English radio stations. And one, one had, in one there was a class on how to make Molotov cocktails so that you could repel the German invasion. Um, but that was just step one of this really, this really cunning plot. Then, one week later, the, uh, the plan was to have this radio station broadcast into England, whatever you do, don't make these Molotov cocktails, they are very dangerous, you will blow yourself up. You know, so think about that, that two-step propaganda. Having them make these Molotov cocktails and, and, and this is your way of, of resisting the German invasion and then saying, these are very dangerous, don't even try. We, we made a mistake trying to teach you. You know, and it just keeps people off base. It seems like the, the original fake news, <laughs> right? I thought I wouldn't ever hear that word fake news again, but thank you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, well... Uh, Let's switch gears a little bit because I wanted to ask you a little bit about the relationship that Churchill was trying to cultivate with FDR. Right, right. Um, Because throughout, at least in the the early days of his first year, Churchill was really trying to convey to FDR the sense that, trying to walk a line, right? We're not so weak that we're going to fail without you, but we'd have a much easier time if you just joined us and and really helped us out. It was a a tough line for him to walk. Well, you know, from... (laughs) From the very, literally, the very beginning, Churchill understood that he would have to bring America into the war. 
um, he, he, he felt that without America, maybe Britain could, could fight to a draw with, with Germany, but to prevail would have to have America actively participating in the war. And so from day one, there, there's a, a scene where he is shaving and his son Randolph is sitting there watching this. And his son Randolph um, uh, is being pessimistic about the chances of, of, of winning. And Churchill basically says, of course, of course we'll win. We're, we're going to draw America in, you know, from day one. He, he understood this. And then he began what really, really was, had more in common with a romantic courtship than, than with a, you know, a sort of a political strategy. Uh, and he acknowledged that himself in one of his, one of his many books about, about how great he was in, in, in the war. Um, uh, he acknowledged that um, uh, very much in those terms, saying that, that, that no lover ever you know, courted the target of his affection as ardently as he did Roosevelt. Um, and, and, you know, um, uh, they, they're really an interesting series of, of, of maneuvers. And from, tell us a little bit about FDR's perspective, because we think about American military might now as unsurpassed, but that was, I was surprised to learn, not the case back then. Well, military, you, when, you, when you're talking about military might, you're talking about the fact that the army was very small. Is that what you're referring to when you talk about yeah, and also Lack that when, when Churchill was thinking about, you know, do we need equipment from the United States uh, overseas, uh, the, the destroyers, I believe it was, yeah, were yeah, really yeah. in rough shape. Yeah, well, the thing, the thing was, the thing was, um, uh, what everybody understood, and Churchill especially, was that, okay, maybe the U.S. Um, military was not yet in, in any shape to, to do any significant fighting. It was not. Um, but... Everybody understood that America, as an industrial giant, had the power to win anything, any war. And if America came in, even the Germans um, uh, sort of, uh, kind of, to themselves acknowledged that if America came into the America came into the war, you know, it, this changed. This absolutely changed everything because of the sheer industrial power of 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 America at that time. FDR was in a situation where, where you know, he understood that the country was not ready. I think, I think he, he even early on recognized that the U.S. would eventually have to come into some participation. But America was, was simply not ready. So he tried to help Churchill in the ways that he could, um, sometimes with more success than others. And was the, he also the Lend-Lease program, for example, was, 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 was really quite, quite brilliant. And, and, you know, um, a lot of the reading that I did, there were, you know, you know, political historians who acknowledged that that was basically an act of war, you know. Lend-Lease. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and describe Lend-Lease for those who aren't, aren't familiar. Well, basically, we, we, were, we, we, were giving, we were giving weapons to Churchill for free. That's, that's, the, that's the basic, basic concept. FDR used this kind of garden hose analogies. Yeah, loaning, loaning your neighbor a garden hose so they could put out the fire in their house and then when the fire is out, give the garden hose back. Right, right. If, if they can. If they can, right. <laughs> so, We're not going to want that garden hose back probably. Yeah, but, the, the, but the really lovely uh, part of the courtship of FDR, I think, was, was uh, first of all, Avril Harriman going over to oversee, you know, oversee the Lend-Lease program. But in fact, uh, it was more to to gauge what's really happening, how, how, how coherent a leader Churchill was. Same with Harry Hopkins, FDR's close friend, who was also sent over to, to, to sort of gauge just how 
just how well the British would be using this material that was coming to them. Although Churchill sort of turned the tables, um, uh, recognizing that Harry Hopkins was this close friend of FDR, Churchill kept him close as anything. He, he, Harry Hopkins was like almost never out of his sight. He was like his, he's just constantly bringing him to, to the dinner parties on trips and all this stuff, just trying to absolutely woo Harry Hopkins at, and successfully, successfully. It was really a, a brilliant, brilliant thing. This might be a good time to bring in a, a question from the audience. Uh, someone asks, uh, you wrote about how unpopular Joe Kennedy was with the Brits. Can you please elaborate? Yeah, the British didn't like Joe Kennedy. They, they thought he was a coward. And, and Joe Kennedy, they didn't like him also because he was totally opposed to, he didn't think the, 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 the Brits were worth fighting for. And his and, role was ambassador before. And as ambassador to, to Britain, yeah. Um, sorry, and, and, and he, he um, yeah, I know, small little detail there, and, and, um, and he kept, he, he would file these reports to FDR, you know, questioning what, you know, the value and questioning Churchill's, Churchill's coherence. Um, but so that in, in Britain, though, people um, recognized this and were, were, really did not like Joe Kennedy. and considered him a coward, and there's a, maybe you can remember this quote, but it, um, there's a line from one of the senior guys in Churchill's cabinet saying, saying that, that um, uh, something to the effect that, that equating Joe Kennedy to the color of his daffodils. Yellow, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, you described the, uh, the state of, of American military affairs at the time. What about the United States politically might have prevented FDR from jumping in uh, as soon as maybe Winston Churchill would have liked. Oh, well, there was there was a lot of a lot of opposition to, to European involvement. Yeah, That's, it, and it's funny. It, it it the statistics are fuzzy in my head because it has been two years since the last time I talked about this. But but you know, at, at first at first there was a lot of support seemingly for American involvement in 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 the in the war. But then when it became very serious, when it looked like a real war, then suddenly that political support really fell off, until Pearl Harbor, of course. Mm -hmm. Until Pearl Harbor, yeah. Um, so uh, with respect to Churchill, he was dealing with some political blowback himself towards the end of that first year. Uh, and this is the one time where <clears throat> he actually seemed afraid. Right? He didn't seem afraid of the Germans. He made very brave, bold pronouncements about fighting to the very last breath. Yeah. But when he faced a vote of confidence uh, towards the end of that first year, he seemed really afraid. Am I reading that correctly? I, he seemed like the most troubled he became was when political opposition started I talking call, poorly about his service. I wouldn't call it fear. I wouldn't call it fear. Um, Churchill... Churchill, for all his, his, his bluster and, and whatnot, um, hated to be criticized. Hated to be criticized. Um, and, and he resented this, this um, uh, effort by opponents to try to bring up, actually, they weren't trying for a vote of, of no confidence. He turned it into a vote of no confidence, and and all the people who were critical of him and who 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 started this whole brouhaha in Parliament were then suddenly like, oh well, 
why are you making this a vote of confidence? We don't want it to be a vote of confidence, but Churchill, you know, wisely sensing his, 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 uh, his opportunity, turned it into a vote of confidence and never sort of repelled his opposition. So, so I wouldn't say he was afraid. Okay, so, so it, does that then mean he was mostly fearless throughout this endeavor? I think, I think Churchill was in fact fearless. I, I, think, um, I, think, I think he was fearless and I think he also was adept the way I like to think about it is, is he, he was adept um, at, at, at teaching, teaching Britons at large the art of being fearless. Yeah. He was the model of fearlessness. For example, um, he made it a point, even though you know, uh, 10 Downing Street had been severely damaged in bombings, he made it a point uh, during, the, during the day to have cabinet meetings at 10 Downing Street and to be seen and be photographed coming out the front door of 10 Downing Street because this is like, you know, defiance. And also, he's the, he's the guy who, you know, um, if ever, whenever there was an air raid, um, you know, I personally would not have wouldn't wanted to be around Churchill because he had this penchant for going up to the nearest roof to watch, to watch the, the, the air raid. In fact, there's this one lovely moment when he's having a, a dinner with an ambassador, I think Tony Biddle, I think, an ambassador from, uh, from America, the ambassador who was assigned to, the, to, to deal with the exiled states of Europe. They were having dinner at, at, at 10 Downing Street, and, um, or actually not 10 Downing Street, it was at their, the annex, at their armored apartment. And, and uh, an air raid started. And so um, uh, Churchill um, invited his guests uh, you know, and private secretary, and uh, um, I think at least four or five guests to join him um, uh, up on the roof to watch this this air raid. And so they all climbed up numerous you know ladders and so forth. There they are on the roof of this this building, and 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 Churchill has the presence of mind and and the, the intellectual firepower uh, as this raid is unfolding and searchlights everywhere and so forth. And he quotes from memory. He quotes a poem of Tennyson's called Locksley Hall, uh, a poem in which Tennyson seems to foretell of aerial warfare. And this, so this is the kind of guy he was, that, you know, utterly fearless in that respect. Was he able to communicate moments like that through people who observed it to yes. the people of London? Yes, yes. And not just, not just um, communicate fearlessness, but also communicate absolute emotional loyalty and support for people who had been in, in bombed out neighborhoods and so forth. He would visit these neighborhoods and, and be visibly, visibly moved, you know, moved to tears, to real tears. And this had a huge effect on people. Yeah, reporters would be on hand, they would document his visits? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Reporters on hand, yes, yes. Yeah. We have some questions about Churchill. I want to make sure we get to those. <clears throat> Someone in the audience wants to know, what fact about Churchill most surprised you? Well, you know, like I say, I came, I came into this as, as a sort of a babe in the woods. I was not a Churchill scholar. I had to get up to speed. And, and so, so many things surprised me, which is sort of, sort of again, sort of, sort, of, sort of my superpower in coming to this, this story because the things that, that surprised me, there are so many, and, and, you know, they would not have surprised somebody who had, like Martin Gilbert, who had done... The, the quintessential uh, Churchill biographer, the late Martin Gilbert, who, who had his, his, his biography of Churchill was, was eight volumes. And, and, and he wrote, he also provided 22 companion volumes consisting of original documents for a total of 14,000 pages. 14,000 pages. 
Now, I've lost my own track there. Um, no, what surprised me? Okay. Whew. Pulled that one out. So, 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 so many things surprised me. But I think the thing that, that, that really, really, really consistently surprised me was, was how much fun Churchill was. How much fun the man could be for those around him, for people who work for him. In what sense? I mean, we well, know he was just, kind of a quirky person, and he liked oh, to eat and drink. and Fantastic sense of humor. Oh, he could be also incredibly inconsiderate and rude. Um, but his, you know, his, his private, private secretaries absolutely loved him. Now, one, one, one little scene, I think, in particular, is it really stands out in my mind that, that where this sort of sense of surprise on my part, my, my part came through. Um, at Checkers, that the, the prime minister of country house, Churchill would have all these people come and come to dinner, his generals, foreign ministers from other places, you know, American diplomats, whatever. And they, and, and they would all sit around the table and drink and eat and all this. Um, and it was a way for Churchill to break down the traditional barriers of, of what would happen in, in, in government ministries in, 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 in Whitehall. You, know, you, you have all your people around you, you know, everybody's drinking. and, and, and the, it was understood that nothing that was said at Checkers would leave Checkers. So dinner's underway one night. Afterwards, you know, Churchill and everybody goes out into the Great Hall at, at Checkers, and Churchill puts on some military music. And uh, he starts doing um, bayonet drills to this music. He's got, he's got a big Madlicker um, uh, um, hunting rifle, and he has attached a bayonet to it. And so he's doing these very, he's not laughing or anything, he's doing very, he was a you know, military guy, doing very serious bayonet drills. But here's the thing, he's, first of all, he's wearing, and you know his, his rough physique, first of all, he is wearing his, his, his sky blue um, uh, siren suit, which is a one-piece jumpsuit that, that he designed uh, to be pulled on in a moment's notice. And over that, he's got his red and orange and gold silk dressing gown. And he's marching around the Great Hall doing these deadly serious bayonet drills. And, and uh, these, all these dignitaries, you know, probably a dozen people, were just in hysterics. <laughs> so uh, that's the kind of thing I loved about, about Turkey. Uh, we have a question uh, about the way you did your research. Uh, someone wants to know, how long did the Splendid and the Vile take to research? How long did it take you to work through those 14,000 pages? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't read all 14,000 pages. The only parts that I had to read, there were 3,500. Okay. So, um, you know, it was a, it was a, it, it, I, I have the luxury, uh, you know, I'm not a professor, I'm, I don't have teaching obligations, so I have the luxury of devoting full time to, to the research a project like this. So I, I would say the research probably took about four, four years, you know, which is, I mean, you know, compared to Martin Gilbert, that's nothing, you know, but, but it took me about, about four years. And, you know, it always begins with, in this case, the tough part was really trying to get up to speed as quickly as I could on the, on the, the existing um, Churchill oeuvre, all the, you know, not all the biographies, but, you know, the, the, the seminal biographies, just try to get up to speed on all that stuff. And also, frankly, to overcome my own growing doubts about why am I doing this? Because there's all this stuff already written, even though I always came back to saying, well, I have this specific. I have this idea. This is what I'm going to pursue. But it took about four years. The thing is, the, thing is, the way I work, um, you know, I, I, I would ideally like to have all my research in hand, absolutely all of it in hand, before I start writing. 
It doesn't work that way. Um, there is always a point where I realize that, you know, I've got enough to start writing some things. Um, there's this pressure building. You know, my wife, who is a, a neonatologist, always equates it to, to, uh, to when uh, she had our babies. You know, she said, you know, there's always a point you get to, you women will probably appreciate this more than the men, there's always a point you get to where, where you realize this baby has to come out. Do you know what I mean? And that's where, that's where, you know, that's where I get to. And then I go into page a day mode where I write one page. I get up at four o'clock in the morning, I write one page. And I stop at a place where I know I can pick up easily the next day. Sometimes mid-sentence, mid-paragraph, very effective, let me tell you. And then I go back to researching and so forth. And then the writing, you know, soon one page a day becomes two, becomes five, and then I'm in full bore writing, but the research never stops actually until, until, you're, until I'm, I'm absolutely done. We had a follow-up question to this research question, which is, which of your books was the most fun to research? Huh, thank you for not asking me which is my favorite book, because that's, that's one that I cannot answer. Um, just as I can't answer which was my favorite uh, daughter. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't, I, I think maybe the book that I did, um, Thunderstruck, about Marconi and, and um, Holly Harvey Cripp in England's second most famous murderer after, of course, Jack the Ripper, um, because the, the travel and the research was so much fun, and I got to take my eldest daughter, who, she's one of these, these people who is really adept at, at picking up language. She and I took Italian together, um, uh, basically for this, this, this book. Um, she became, in the course of that period and with some time spent in Italy, absolutely fluent, fluent in Italian. And so I brought her with me to sort of open doors on, on that trip. And, you know, the, the Italians, first of all, she, she's beautiful, so, and she was a beautiful young woman. Um, uh, and spoke almost perfect Italian, so, so it was just like, you know, because I was her father, I was like walking on water. I remember, I remember being in a, in a, in a restaurant um, in, a, in Deruda in Italy, having lunch, and the waiter, the waiter says to her, says to her, says, you know, your, your, your Italian is very good. And then he, he puts his hand on my arm, and he says, and yours is not so good. <laughs> 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 but it was it was such a lovely lovely love. I, 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 if I have time to tell the story, I mean, please do. Such yes. a lovely thing. I, okay, this is a long story. Bear with me. Nobody hang themselves. This is it. So, so we had planned this trip. You know, you know, non-refundable airfares. You know, hotels, everything, right? And we're 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 just about to you know set out. Um, it's in the week um, before we were going to set out. The Pope dies. The Pope dies. And the rumor is that, that, you know, all the hotels are going to be, you know, no reservation is going to be honored, that, that, you know, if you fly over there, you're going to have to sleep on the plane because, you know, it's all, it's all done because the Pope's funeral was going to take place the day we were set to arrive. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's, I don't know if you recall, but so all of Rome was basically shut down. The only cars allowed in the city because of concerns about terrorists were cabs. And we just thought, I just thought, th- th- this whole trip is going to be a complete disaster. Turned out, not to be a disaster. First of all, we go to our hotel, and my daughter goes up to the, to the, 
to the uh, to the uh, clerk at the desk, and and her job was to find a good place for us to go to dinner. And the guy just perks right up, and and I swear he had this sort of little look in his eye. Um, and so he tells us about a, a restaurant in the old city called Da Sabatino. So my daughter Kristen and I go to Da Sabatino, and we're sitting outside. It's just lovely. We're the only people in this in this outside part of this restaurant, except for like three priests who are sitting over here drinking Compt whiskey. You know, this is this is Italy in full bore. So we were sitting here, and we we had a great dinner, and you know we were we were we were getting uh, getting ready to to go, and and the waiter, this very charismatic guy, comes over and he says. I think you should have dessert. And we're like, you know, what, what does this mean? Now, I should also add that my kid at that point had been like raised on the TV show Alias about spies and all this stuff. So, so we're like, well, okay, we'll, we'll order dessert. And suddenly, suddenly, this caravan of Italian police cars pulls up. You know, the Italians do this better than anybody in the world. <laughs> these these low-slung Alfa Romeo police cars you know, the cops are literally have the doors open. They're hanging out the doors, these really attractive young Italian men with their guns out, looking at the, at the, at the rooftops, right? In the middle of this caravan um, is a giant black Chevy Suburban. Now, one mystery is how that Suburban got into the old city in Rome, you know? So these guys pull up and they, 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 they park. And who steps out of that car? But Bill Clinton, <laughs> William Jefferson Clinton, steps out of that car. And honestly, you, you know, you know, it was almost visual, the shockwave of charisma that went through that restaurant. <laughs> you know? And so he comes walking up the center aisle of this restaurant. We're sitting there. My daughter's there. And then again, she's quite, quite striking young woman. Um, and Bill Clinton you know, walks up and looks at her and goes, well, hi. <laughs> And, and she, looks, she looks at him and says, hi. And you know, you know, all the Secret Service guys, you know, the Italian, the, the US guys, they're all going for their guns because they know I'm going to kill them. <laughs> kill the guy. But it was, it was a great moment. And so that, that and many other very charismatic Italian moments and also time I spent in, in Britain and actually time in Nova Scotia. It was just, just lovely, lovely. It was fun. The most fun you've ever had researching. Great. <clears throat> Um, I have a question that's going to take a deep dive back into the book for a moment, but sure. I do want this story to be recounted because it's such a great story. Um, so the question from the audience member is, what happened to Rudolf Hess's message to the Duke? What happened to his message? Yes. So it might, might require, for those who haven't read the book yet, a, a quick summary of what Hess tried to do. Okay, so... so. <laughs> Well, let me just talk about Hess. I'll yes, just, I'll please just tell do. You, I'll tell you why Hess is in the book. There is no good reason for him to be in the book. But he's in the book because, because you know, the narrative structure of this book, it's a misnomer to say that this book is about the first year of, of, of Churchill's prime minister because that was not at all the point. The point was that on May 10th, you know, this German air campaign essentially begins when he becomes prime minister. And it literally ends on May 10, 1941. The next day, everything's quiet, and, it, and it's essentially over. There are other air raids that would follow over time, other air campaigns and so forth. But this was the crucial, the crucial campaign, and actually the crucial victory for Britain in terms of resilience and so forth. So 
this one-year period. But then there were other narratives that also came to a close conveniently on May 10, 1941. In the world of nonfiction, that never happens. One of which is the, is the Mary Churchill narrative, a thing happens with her, uh, that ends on, on, on literally on March 10, 1941. Um, the week before is when Churchill has this challenge um, in, 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 in Parliament. But also on May, t on May 10, you know, Hitler's famous fruitcake, Rudolf Hess, parachutes into Scotland. Parachutes into Scotland. You know, and it's like, oh my God, everything on that same day, I can't believe this. This is such, from a narrative perspective, it was so wonderful, you know? And here's this crazy guy on paper, Rudolf Hess, and again, don't confuse him with the concentration camp guy. This is Rudolf Hess on paper. He was Hitler's number two guy, uh, number two guy. Parachutes into Scotland in the middle of the night. Without telling Hitler first that he was going. Without telling Hitler he was going. He had, he had sent a message to the, 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 the Duke um, in, in, in Scotland that, that you know, he wanted to meet with him. Um, and the, of course, now, me being who I am, the thing that most appealed to me, I, I love putting lists in my books. If there are lists that are interesting, I can, they help pace the narrative and so forth. The thing that most interested me about, about Hess was what he brought with him on this flight. He brought something like 50 homeopathic medicines, you know, and I just list them. I just list them all. And these, 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 these were, these I, these I found, this list I found um, going through uh, RAF intelligence files, and, and I just, I couldn't believe it. All, all this stuff, all this sleeping pills, things for, things for constipation, things for diarrhea. I mean, the guy was ready for everything, right? <laughs> So. And, and his message, as far as I understand it, right, he was trying to work a back channel to bring a peaceful resolution, right? And, and, and so he, he, to say that he parachuted is, it sounds very intentional. He kind of ran out of fuel, and so he had to just dump the plane. <laughs> well, okay, you're splitting hairs there. No, no, sorry. <laughs> he had sorry. to leave all his medications. His, his intent. <laughs> His intent was his intent was to land and, and, and meet with this duke and try to establish this back panel in, in hopes of hopes of, of it's very complicated and very nuanced, but let's just say for argument's sake that he's trying to get some peace going here, right? Um, and it was his intent to land this aircraft, this this especially equipped, you know, Messerschmitt fighter. Um, but yeah, he, he kind of he kind of lost his way, ran out of gas, went flying all over the place, and, and finally had to had to parachute out. And actually, even really actually even screwed up the parachuting. Um, uh, what eventually had to happen: the plane was flying upside down. He sort of fell out. So um, quasi intentionally fell out. Um, and so, but miraculously, he landed. Do you remember what the distance is? I can't remember. I, like tw 20 miles from the Duke's house? I can't, I can't remember. You know, but. it was just, what? <laughs> and so, I love that stuff. And of course, of course here, here's, here's, here's Rudolf Hess, lands in a field, is only slightly injured. Um, and a local farmer um, um, basically brings him into his house and offers some tea, <laughs> as one does to Hitler's number two guy. Right. <laughs> It's not every day they no. parachute into your field. Um, love, and so the, and so the message never, never quite made it. He kind of just got picked up by the, by the police and, and it, it, the effort kind of died right there. Yeah, and spent the rest of his life in prison, yeah. So. 
Well, whoever asked that question, thank you. It was great to have an excuse to get into that yeah. story. That was a wonderful story. Um, as we come to a close here, Eric Larson, I did want to ask you what you might hope uh, today's leaders would, um, would take from this book if they, if they were to read it. What, what lessons do you think uh, you'd, uh, you'd hope they'd impart, uh, take from this, this narrative? Well, I, I don't know what, what the leaders would want to take from this book, but, but um, you know, the, the, thing that, the thing that stands out about Winston Churchill, I think, is that is his, his ability to, 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 to raise courage among the, the, the British population. Although he, he, would have, he, would have, he would have argued with me on that. His, his feeling was he didn't, he didn't make them fearless. He helped them find their own courage. And one way that he did that was with um, you know, the architecture of, of his speeches. It's so, you know, one, one thrilling thing about Churchill was how articulate he was as a speaker. God knows we could use some of that. You know what I mean? <laughs> Um, and 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 you know so so he and he would structure his speeches in a very very interesting way. He would he would give you a very sober accounting of what was happening. You know, people knew people knew this was a dark time. These were you know bad things were happening. You can't lie about them. So he would he would he would not sugarcoat. He would tell you what's happening. Then he would come back the middle of the speech with, with, with real cause for why you should not lose heart. For there's this, there's this, there's you know, whatever concrete things were actually happening. And then the closer, you know, these rousing statements that would just almost literally get people out of their chairs. As one, as one of his, one of his um, senior guys put it, you know, he had this way of making you feel like you were part of the grand story of British history, that you were, you were an, an element in this saga. And, and that was an act. It was a real powerful thing. Well, Eric Larson, thank you so much for joining us. My on pleasure. Writers on the New England stage. Thank you all. The Music Hall's executive director is Tina Sautel. New Hampshire Public Radio's president and chief executive officer is Jim Schachter. NHPR's producer for Writers on the New England Stage is Sarah Plourd. The Music Hall production manager is Jana Morris. Music Hall live sound and recording engineer Ian Martin. Musical director and band Bob Lord and Dreadnought. Music Hall literary producer is Brittany Wasson. I'm Peter Biello. Thank you again for coming out in person to this Writers on the New England Stage.